The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, the defense has started to present their case in the murder trial of Curtis Reeves, and two of their biggest witnesses are also the people with the closest connection to the defendant, his wife and son. But how does their eyewitness testimony compare to what we heard from the prosecution's witnesses? Court TV's Ted Rollins joins me to discuss the differing views of the same shooting. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinny Politan. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for downloading the Court TV Podcast. We are in the middle of some trial down in Pasco County, Florida. It's the case of Curtis Reeves. Curtis Reeves was a retired police officer. He was 71 years old and going to check out a movie with the missus goes to the theater and gets into an argument with a gentleman who is also uh, there with his wife. So it must be, you know, it's like date day or date night. I think it's a matinee. And Chad Olson is there with his wife, Nicole. Curtis Reeves is there with his wife, uh, Vivian, and they're getting ready to watch a movie. The previews are playing and there's an argument about Chad Olson using his cell phone during the previews. Curtis Reeves calls him out on it. There's a back and forth. Curtis Reeves goes to the manager. Curtis Reeves comes back. It continues. It escalates. Uh, Chad Olson reaches over, grabs Reeves' popcorn, throws it at him, and then Curtis Reeves shoots and kills Chad Olson. He's charged with murder, but he's claiming self-defense. That's the story. Let me bring in uh, my colleague, Court TV anchor Ted Rollins, Ted, you know, you you look at the big picture of this story and you still wonder, how on earth can you go from going out on a date with the missus to shooting a man inside a movie theater? I mean, people don't go to movie theaters to get into fights. It's not like, you know, it's it's, it's time to throw down, right? I I, I don't understand how we got there. Unless you go to movie theaters and one of the first things you do is patrol the theater for cell phone users, which Curtis Reeves may have been doing because there were other people that came out of the woodwork later and the jury is not going to hear any of this uh, in this case. But I think that's part of the going to a movie experience for Curtis Reeves at the time, eight years ago, he was that guy who would say, put your phone away. You're at the dinner table or you're here or you're in a movie theater. Put your phone away. And it he said it to the wrong guy. The guy that said, "Uh, excuse me, you're not my dad. You're not the boss of me. And now we've got two hair. uh, Hair trigger, uh, you know, hair, hair. What do you call that? When your your trigger is too thin, it's like a hair trigger. Hair trigger. Yeah, it's the hair trigger. Yeah, yeah. So these guys are both. Yeah, Ted and I shoot guns all the time, folks. We (laughs) shoot guns all the time. They they lose it, and um, in an instant, it's crazy. It's instant. One man is dead after going to didn't even get to the movie. It was during the previews. During the previews, and and the other part I don't understand is. I understand like they're screaming. They might be yelling back and forth. The throwing of the popcorn. It 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 escalated right, but. 
at the end of the day, one man is in one row, the other man's in another row. Does Curtis Reeves really think that this guy's going to jump over and start beating on him in a theater, like in the middle of the day? I don't understand, you know, what was going through his mind, but that's really what the trial ends up being all about, right? Is he angry or is he in fear? Is he angry or is he scared? And what, to me, his wife, Vivian, got on the stand and testified. And during her testimony, at one point, she said, I was so scared because this man in front of us was using profanities and I became very scared. And then she kept talking and said that when her husband got up to go complain to the manager, her emotions changed to being, quote, ticked off. If Vivian Reeves is ticked off, well, then what was Curtis? And I believe that they were both angry that this individual in front of them was using curse words and was arguing about turning his phone off. So that's what the, the jury's going to have to decide. Was Curtis scared or was Curtis mad? Because if Curtis is mad, then Curtis is going to prison. Now, the other thing about the shooting, it's in a movie theater. So it, it's not fully dark yet because it's the previews, right? So it's like half lit. But there are a bunch of folks there who also wanted to go to see a movie that day. They didn't get to see the movie. They saw something completely different. But now they had to come into a court and testify about it. And, and one big part of this case that you have to remember is that this happened eight years ago. It has taken eight years to get to trial, which is unconscionable on many levels uh, for a victim to have to wait that long for, for a day in court when you know that this man has shot and killed your husband and you want to know, is someone going to hold him responsible or not? It's not, a, it's not one that they had to solve. They knew who was responsible. The question is, is it self-defense or is it murder? So what I want to do here in our first segment is go through some of this eyewitness testimony and, and try to figure out what impact all of that could have on the case. Uh, let's begin with eyewitness number one. The next thing I observe is popcorn in the air. All right. Do you know how it got in the air? I do not know how it got in the air, but when it was in the air, that's what caught my attention again. All right. So popcorn's in the air. Popcorn's in the air. What's the next thing that happens? Flash shot. Flash and a bang. Yes. All right. Immediately or soon thereafter, did you hear Mr. Reeves make a statement? Yes, I did. Okay. What did you hear him say? Something along the lines of throw popcorn in my face or throw popcorn at me. Is that the smoking kernel here, Ted? Is, is this it? Because... This is the moment right after the shooting, and it seems that Curtis Reeves is acknowledging some level of anger that this man threw popcorn at him. Yeah, and if the jury believes this testimony, and he's not the only one, there was another individual that had the same recollection, then it's over in my mind because that shows his anger, not his fear after discharging the weapon and, and, and shooting another man. And it's instantaneous, right? It happens all within seconds. And if, if you believe him, and the defense has gone a long way to make it sound as though you wouldn't be able to hear anything. You, and, and jury, you can't believe anything people say. The, pre, the previews were playing. It was chaos. Uh, but if you believe uh, those witnesses who claim he had that utterance, it's game over. It's, and, and, and it's because 
it's right afterwards. It's like instantaneously to me, that is so important because it's not like a moment to reflect and then say, Oh, there, there's some popcorn on the floor or he took my popcorn. No, no, it's right after it seems like this is the definition of that, of that phrase that we use all the time, losing your temper, right? You, you, when you lose your temper, that means you no longer have control of what you're doing. I just lost my temper. And that is anger. That is not fear. That's what I'm hearing um, from that witness. That's the, that's the, that's the, the image. That's what's playing in my mind right now is some guy is just angry that how dare he throw popcorn at me, but we all know that popcorn is not going to hurt you, all right? Sticks and stones may break your bones, Ted Rollins, but popcorn I don't think will ever hurt you. No, and and it's that, did he know it was popcorn? Because he would later, within you know minutes, tell police, he didn't know what it was that hit him. He felt an object hit him, maybe a cell phone or a fist, or he just didn't know. But if he uttered the word popcorn, then he knew. And if he knew, um, he was lying. And, and that's the problem, though. And the defense is doing a good job of muddying the waters with the amount of these eyewitnesses, because each one of the eyewitnesses in that movie theater tells a very slightly different story and has a, a little different recollection. And so in closings, you can hear it now how eyewitness testimony, and it's true, is unreliable. So can the state hang its hat on just these eyewitnesses? I don't think so. Let's take a listen to some of that cross-examination of this same witness. Now, he was leaning towards Mr. Reeves at this time, like a person who was upset would talk to someone. He was leaning slightly over to get his point across. Well, would you characterize it as like a person who was upset would talk to someone? Yes. And he was yelling, right? He, I could hear his voice, yes. He was yelling, was he not? He brought it, his, his voice was above normal, yes. Well, let's talk about that. To you, voice above normal is different than yelling, isn't it? It wasn't a total yell. I mean, a total yell is obviously almost screaming. He wasn't screaming it, but his voice was above normal, yes. Was it yelling? No, I wouldn't say it was yelling. Page 40, lines 24 and 25. Question, line 24, he was yelling, answer, yeah. Remember that? Yes. And I'm sure everyone believes he was yelling. This was an argument. They were, they were screaming, but I, I think the other thing they want to get into is this whole leaning over, because Chad Olson's a big guy, and Curtis Reeves is a big guy too. Chad's uh, bigger, but Chad was actually standing up. So if he's standing up, leaning over, that is the image that the defense wants this jury to have. But even if they have that image, is that enough? We've all been in movie theaters. It takes a little something more to, to get from one road to the next. Yeah. And, and the he, Curtis Reeves is a former police officer with years of experience. How did, did, did he really perceive a threat? And if he did, 
then that's where the self-defense comes in and the, and the jury may decide in his favor. He's using the fact that he's old, there's a guy in front of him, you know, six, almost six, four, and he's young and he's yelling. That yelling is a part of the equation because it gives everybody the feeling of, oh, you know, that he was, he had become unhinged, Chad Olson. And the problem that each one of these witnesses has, including both wives took the stand and told vastly different stories. They basically saying the other person was unhinged, but oh, my, um, my husband was not. The, the jury's got to parse this out, but if they, and the defense needs them to believe that Chad Olson was a large, angry man that had just physically assaulted in some fashion. Yes, it turned out to be popcorn, but Reeves didn't know what it was. He had just assaulted Curtis Reeves and it was a reaction uh, out of fear. Let's take a listen to another one of the witnesses who was in the theater that day. I, I was so concerned that uh, Mr. Olson and Mr. Reeves were going to have a physical altercation. And I, I thought that, I thought that um, Mr. Reeves was going to stand up as quickly as he did when he left to go out of the theater and he was going to punch Mr. Olsen in the nose or something like that. I never expected a shot. I thought it was going to be a physical thing. Okay, so you thought the defendant was going to attack Chad Olsen physically? Yes, yeah, he, he was the one that appeared to me to be mad. Okay, not Mr. Olsen? No. Um, at any point in time, did you see Chad Olsen physically attack this defendant? Never. That's bad for Mr. Reeves. This is an independent witness again in the theater that day, and she's looking at a situation, and, and I think this is, again, something jurors can relate to when we see something happening, right? You, you, you're evaluating what's going on over there. And then from her perspective, it was Curtis Reeves who was the angry one. Curtis Reeves, the one who was unhinged. Curtis Reeves, Ted Rollins, the one who was losing his temper. Yeah, she was a great, her name was Jane Roy. And the problem with a case that takes eight years to go to trial is someone like Jane Roy has eight years to really take a side. And when a jury thinks that an, an um, uninvested witness is taking a side, it makes a big difference. And Jane Roy came across as being the a perfect prosecution witness she was very believable, her mannerisms, but that that underlying um, feeling that she was able to project to the jury that her basic statement was Curtis Reeves was the one out of control. And that is damning. And she was, I, I would argue, um, the best witness in terms of eyewitnesses for, for the state of Florida. She was fantastic. You know, what's fascinating about this case and the role of the eyewitnesses is they're almost a jury themselves, right? When you think about it, they're sitting down and they're watching what's happening, which is in, in real time, this, this back and forth between these two guys, and they've got to make a ruling and a judgment. And I think if they're, if the overall tone of what they're saying is, listen, it, no, it was Reeves's fault. I mean, he's the, he's the guy who's instigating this. He's the guy who's escalating this. He's the one who, who's, who's unhinged. If they're making that judgment, to me, if I'm, a, if I'm a juror in the case, 
I almost want to rely upon their judgment. They're seeing all of this firsthand, right? They're uninvested people who happened to be there that day, um, didn't expect that they would have to witness um, a man get shot and killed, but they did. And now they're making their own sort of judgment on who was right and who was wrong. Um, I, I, th I think you're so right, Ted, that that is such an important message uh, for this jury to get. And I, if I was a prosecutor, I would make that argument that, ladies and gentlemen, you heard, you are the members of this jury, but we heard from the jury that day. Who is the jury? The eyewitnesses. They told us exactly who was right and who was wrong. Oh, yeah. Talk about a front row seat to justice. They had it in that movie theater. Uh, I, you know, you, you throw out the, the wives. Both of them told such different stories that you have to say, all right, I get it. They're supporting their spouse. Um, so you throw them out and now who's left? It, 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 it's Curtis Reeves and these eyewitnesses. And Reeves had that long story that he told officers afterwards. So the jury knows what he claims happened. These eyewitnesses, I agree with you, they're the, the initial jury and, and, and each one of them in their own way did their best to project to this jury, the seating jury, uh, what they thought after eight years of contemplation. And I'll tell you, Jane Roy <laughs> sure thinks that Curtis Reeves was responsible. Well, let's take a listen to her cross-examination and see what the defense tried to do. While Mr. Reeves is saying nothing, it is when Mr. Olson stands up, right? Yes. And tells Mr. Reeves, you reported me to management. I did not hear management. I heard you reported me. You reported me. And you could tell at that moment that Mr. Olson was not happy. Well, I suppose not. In fact, you believe he was angry. I did not say he was angry. I said he said he reported me to, you reported me to management. Did he say that in an angry way? I don't know Mr. Olson, so I don't know if for him that was angry. It didn't strike me as angry. It was more like he was annoyed, like, you reported me to management. So are you telling me that because you don't know Mr. Olson, you can't tell us when he's angry, but you can look at Mr. Reeves. Oh, well, Mr. Olson, Mr. Olson was not frowning. Mr. Olson was not frowning and mumbling. He was clear spoken and he said, you reported me. <laughs> she loves to describe that frown, that look on Curtis Reeves face. Yeah. At one point she <laughs> called him grumpy from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And she's such a memorable witness. She had a brain tumor at one point and they, and she lost basically her eye and the one side of her face. So in close, I'm sure you're going to hear the prosecution saying, and remember Jane Roy, who, you know, had, had suffered that brain tumor because she was so memorable and so clear and just had everyone's attention. Um, I would imagine not being informed, but boy, she just, I, Again, great witness. And look at how she stood up to the cross-examination, not budging a bit. Absolutely. Okay, so when we come back, let's dive into the defense case and let's 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 focus on the family of Curtis Reeves because two family members were there that day. You've mentioned Mrs. Reeves, his son also there, his son who's a police officer as well. 
So we'll take a listen to some of their testimony and break down what impact that may have on the six members of this jury. you leave, I am going to kill you. The killer, you know. They were the perfect family, but never suspected. I'll find you one way or the other. Someone they knew with Tamron Hall. Premiering Sunday, March 6th, only on Court TV. So did you look in the theater to see if you could see where you were And did you see them at that time? No. And again, were you all the way down or were you moving up? I took like two steps up. And now at some point, do you hear something? Yes. Tell me what it is that you hear. Uh, I heard my dad say something to the uh, extent of get out of my face or get off of me. Okay, let's talk about that for a second. Number one, um, when you heard that, was that in between the previews? Yes. So the second preview hadn't started yet. Do you agree with that? Yes, sir. Um, Now... When you heard that, how did you recognize the voice? It's my father. I've known his voice my whole life. And uh, when you heard it, what was the tone of the voice? Alarming. Did it alarm you? Yes. Alarming. That is Curtis Reeves' son, who was meeting Curtis Reeves at the theater that day, and his, and his, his mom as well. Uh, they were going to see the movie together. And ironically, I think they were texting one another. Well, Curtis Reeves was in the theater, which he's using his phone, folks, which is his whole issue. Don't use your phone inside the theater. But apparently, Curtis Reeves was using his phone in communicating with his son who showed up. Ted, what do you think about that that image of him walking in the theater, kind of hears something going on and recognizes his father's voice? It, can that be good for the defense? I don't know that he was, I know that his, his intention was to help his father and uh, to give the jury this sense of how chaotic it was, how quick it happened, but it just adds another level of sort of despair and, and people online, I know have been thinking, man, this Curtis Reeves was, he was running the show. He is a type a and you add the family dynamic. If jurors are thinking the same thing, we're watching the wife in court watching her on the stand. And now you're, you're seeing the whole family parading up in front of the jury. Sometimes it evokes sympathy and empathy and it helps, but I don't know that it really carried it. Keep in mind, he's a police officer too. So his affect was very black and white kind of, you know, he came on there almost as a professional witness and that that's just different. It's different than, a lay witness. And I just, for that reason, I don't know how much he moved the ball. And think about the contrast between the two families. And, and I don't, and I don't think this helps the defense either. Um, I believe the jury knows and understands that the Olsons had a young child at home and they, you know, they have to think about it. Okay. This is 2014. That child now for eight years has had no dad. Nicole, who came in and testified, has had to be that that mom and and dad at the same time for this child. And uh, you contrast that with the Reeves, who've, you know, he's been out. He's he was able to raise his children. They're all adults. He was there when they were young. And the contrast is, is that 
Uh, Chad Olson will not be there for for his child as she grows up. So to me, um, that's contrast. It, I think it's kind of subtle, but I'm wondering if any of the jurors just kind of feel that a little bit, you know, in, in looking at these two families that were so impacted by what happened that day and how one family has been much oh, more. Oh, for impacted. sure. One, one father is claiming he's texting to check on his two-year-old and, and another is texting where they're sitting to his adult son to come watch a matinee, uh, very different stages in life. And that young daughter is a, a theme that I, I, people, you look at the wife, you look at um, her in the courtroom, Nicole Olson, she's a fixture. You can't help but think of their daughter. I mean, it, they go hand in hand. And I agree with you 100%. If you're going to talk about which family is hurting more. It's the Olsons, uh, no doubt about it. Another thing I think in some of the, this case comes down to is who started this, right? Curtis Reeves is the one that said, hey, buddy, turn off your phone on some level. And everyone agrees about that. Everyone now, every one of the jurors will have a reaction to that. Maybe you're going to get a juror that thinks, oh yeah, I've done that before. I doubt it, uh, especially eight years later. I think the initial reaction to anyone hearing that story is like, oh, man, I can't believe that guy did that. You know, it was during the previews. It was texting. He wasn't talking. You have a negative feeling about Curtis Reeves out of the gate when you recreate it in your head of what happened. And that is tough to get over. Okay, let's get to Mrs. Reeves now. We've talked about her a little bit. Let's listen now to Curtis Reeves' wife on direct. Now, once Mr. Olson stood up, what is the next thing? What is the next thing you observe Mr. Olson do? He leans towards Curtis. His whole—it seemed like his whole upper body was leaning towards Curtis. And when you observe that motion, how did it make you feel in terms of what it looked like to you? I thought he was coming over. And uh, it just freaked me out. I was terrified. So, you know, I think about Vivian Reeves, and she's been out to the movies with Curtis, uh, I would say, hundreds and hundreds of times, right? They've been together for 50 years or more than 50 years. The fact that Curtis, her husband, is getting into a confrontation with someone in the theater, we know is not something new. Do you think the jury picks up that vibe from her testimony that this wasn't like, wow, this is crazy. We're getting into an argument in a movie theater. That's a good point. Yeah, I, I think it, it, uh, there is that vibe you get. It's like, okay, Curtis is doing it again. Or he's, you know, he's always got to do this. Her reaction afterwards uh, was negative towards her husband. That, you know, as part of the record here is that she... According to um, a, a witness, said something to the effect of "You can't do that." And Curtis had a "You be quiet" at one point to his wife. This is playing out um, in front of the jury with the wife in the gallery. And, and the more you look at those two, the more you hear about all of this. Um, I would argue that some jurors are thinking, "Wow, I kind of feel sorry for for Vivian." Um, all those years of, of Curtis and, and him being Curtis in charge. 
and, and, and I, you know, we don't know the dynamics of the 50 year marriage, but it does, it does come across in, in my opinion. I, and she says it, it freaked me out. You know, when this story first happened, I thought perhaps part of the story would be that Curtis Reeves was, you know, scared for, wanted to protect himself and his wife that, you know, but there's really none of that. That's not part of the dynamic here, but she is seated right next to him, right? It's not like they put a, a, a seat in between to put their their uh, jackets or anything, right? They're, they're right next to each other in that theater. Yeah, right next to each other. So you would uh, think that if, if you're going to, your instinct is to protect Vivian in this scenario, someone, let's say someone threw the cell phone or hit you in the face with a fist, your initial reaction to protect your wife to your right, to your wife, cover your wife, then turn towards the aggressor. You don't pull out a gun and use it. That might actually hit your wife. The more you dissect it mentally of what happened, what he did, where his wife was, um, I mean, you, you got to kind of sit and wonder um, about their relationship-ish. Uh, you know, and, and again, I don't want to get into because we don't know. But and, and I'm sure Vivian loves him more than anything and wants him to be found not guilty. But it, it, it doesn't come across as I was doing this protect my wife of 50 years. That's for sure. Yeah, that's the, that's the, I think that's bad. I think that's really bad for Curtis Reeves because initially I thought that would be part of it, right? You're an elderly couple at the theater. This guy is out of control. I've got to protect myself. I've got to protect my wife. But that's not part of the equation at all in any of this. As a matter of fact, it, it looks like he, he may have, through this argument and the back and forth, actually put his wife in, in danger, Right. By escalating, like from there for my wife, I'm like, no, this is not the time to get into all this. She is right next to me. It's a dark theater. This could be very, very dangerous. I don't know who this guy is. Um, I'm a trained police officer. I should be de-escalating things. And I think that's something else the jury may think about. The defense was bragging about his um, accolades as a police officer, but part of being a police officer is taking a situation and bringing it down a notch, not elevating it up to the next notch. Let's do this now, because this was really fascinating. The cross-examination of Curtis Reeves' wife. What a moment this was. Let's listen. You see the defendant, your husband, leaning back, correct? Yeah. To his just, left? Just a brief glance. All right. And you see his right leg out? Yes, sir. And you said you saw, at this point, you see Mr. Olson standing. Yes. Right? Did you ever see him hit the defendant? No. I Did you Okay, I'm sorry. Did you ever hear a slap or hit? Did you hear skin on skin, something loud like if someone had been punched? No, sir. Did you see him throw a phone? No, sir. Did you see him throw anything? No. Really, I wish I had. I just I just couldn't handle it. Your Honor, I'm going to ask that her last statements be stricken as gratuitous and not responsive to a question. I wish I had. That can be interpreted many different ways, Ted. Many different ways. What, what, what does that mean to you when she says, no, I didn't see him throw a phone, I didn't see him punch my husband. I, I wish I had. 
Well, that would help our case. If I could honestly say that I saw that, then maybe Curtis wouldn't be in such a pickle. But she didn't. Why? Because it likely didn't happen. She had the ultimate. She's sitting right next to him, right? She's sitting right next. That this is the part, right? You're in this theater, and the 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 seats are. You know how they are, folks. You've all been to a movie theater. This isn't this isn't a theater with those fancy chairs that they have now, right? Those are the only theaters that Ted goes to now. The ones with the reclining chairs and the fancy buttons. So this is like old school, regular movie theater chairs that when you stand up, the bottom flips up, right? Old school stuff. They're right next to each other. And and she doesn't see her husband get allegedly hit with a cell phone. She doesn't see an alleged punch that um, the defense keeps talking about. That's a big problem, Ted. Huge. Because if she didn't see it, then it likely didn't happen. And that's the problem that, that Curtis Reeves has. Now, you know, he can get up there and and, um, and tell a different story, which he, you know, he has told police that he something hit him. And that's true. Something did hit him. It was popcorn. And maybe he didn't realize it was just his popcorn that hit him in the face at the time. His knee jerk reaction, though, was to pull out his firearm and and shoot somebody. One other thing that she said in that in that cross-examination, she describes how she did notice how Curtis had his right leg out and his gun was in his front pocket on the right side, which means to me that possibly he's loading, he's ready to go even before the popcorn is thrown, that he's pushed his leg, leg out, grabbing the gun and ready to roll if need be before the popcorn. And that is another potential problem unless he can spin it and and pull off a miracle that is so true that is so true that that image and we can't forget there's a video of this whole thing ted it's it's one of the grainiest videos we've ever seen um and there's there's a big issue with the video with whether or not you see the cell phone uh get thrown there's some shiny object one side is saying it's Curtis Reeves' sneakers. It's the reflection of the light off his sneakers. The other side is saying, well, it could also be his, his cell phone after he threw it. Um, and, and the video is just not clear. It, it's just not clear. Um, what role now, Ted, this is a big picture question for you. What role do you think the video has that the jury sees, which is extremely grainy and dark, and you don't see Chad Olson except his arms, and you see the popcorn? What impact does that have versus the eyewitnesses? Where, where, what does the jury do with that? Normally, I would say the video has little or no place because it doesn't show anything. However, the defense has done a very good job of muddying the water in this case. They have brought on expert after expert to talk about everything from Curtis Reeves is getting old to the video. And their video expert was a fascinating individual. He went on way too long bored the jury to death, I would argue. However, it now becomes this, uh, the video, the video, they keep talking about it. They'll come back in the close and say what the video did or didn't show. And it might get more consideration than it should. And that's what the defense wants. They want distractions. Someone gets caught up on this shiny phone. And if it was a phone, somehow they're arguing that if this phone was in Chad Olson's hand and may have left his hand during the popcorn transfer or after he was shot that that somehow makes Curtis Reeves um, okay to pull his gun out and shoot him. This is the, they're doing a great job of extending the case and cluttering the case, which 
we'll have to wait and see, but you never know. I think you're right. They want this jury thinking that if he throws the cell phone, it's justified. And is there a reasonable, is there a chance that the cell phone was thrown? Not that they're convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that the cell phone was thrown, because that's not the burden. It's just they have to raise a doubt. And, and is the doubt focused for this jury on the cell phone? And, and that's the defense bringing the jury, you know, focusing in the weeds on one little thing instead of pulling back and looking at the big, big picture. And the big picture at the end of the day is always a man gets shot in a movie theater because right after he threw popcorn at the man who shot him. And that's it. And that's and, and, and to me, that is the big picture. And somehow, if if the jury has that in their mind, there's no way they let Curtis Reeves go home. I couldn't agree more. Now, as long as the prosecution doesn't get caught into this battle and try to fight the and say, no, it was a shoe, because you're right. That can turn one juror. That can you can get a juror who's convinced that they haven't proven that it wasn't the shoe or it was the shoe and it was the phone. And now we're talking about the whole case around something that nobody knows and both sides know nobody knows. And that's why you have to tip your hat to the aggressive defense of Curtis Reeves, Dino Michaels and Richard Escobar leading it. And, and, you know, First of all, they delayed this for eight years. A 71-year-old man was able to spend eight years with his wife, Vivian, at home. Um, and now um, just bringing all of this up. They, I'm sure they're being paid a lot of money, but they're doing an excellent job. They are. And that's, and, and that's what we want. That's what uh, our system demands. That's the only way that the system works. A vigorous defense and a focused prosecution. Ted Rollins, Court TV anchor. You can check him out every morning, folks. He starts the day for us on your front row seat to justice. Um, 9 a.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday, every day, Ted, every morning. you got to wake up early and get us started. Yes, sir. That's my job. All right. Ted Rollins, folks. When we come back, we're going to talk about what, what, is, what I have the biggest problem with in this entire case, okay? What really, really, I think, is, is the big thing from this trial that we take away that has to be fixed. And I'll give you a hint. It's not stand your ground. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. This trial to me, highlights a big, big problem that we have in our system. Big problem. And it it has nothing to do with stand your ground. Because I know a bunch of people are going to jump up and down and say, Florida has stand your ground, and that's why Curtis Reeves uh, shot Chad Olson. Um, I I will not agree with you. I do not agree with you. Uh, Curtis Reeves attempted to uh, establish a stand your ground at a a pretrial hearing. He was denied. I believe the the law is working properly there. Here's where I have the problem, and this is this is it. And Ted referenced it right there at the end of the last segment. This happened in 2014. 
It's now 2022, and we're finally having a trial? Really? Really? And, and I understand the defense has been vigorous, and they've litigated a lot of issues. But this, to me, this is inexcusable. And we have a, a concept, a constitutional concept in our criminal justice system known as a speedy trial. And the fine print of a speedy trial is that the person who's entitled to a speedy trial is the defendant. The accused is entitled to a speedy trial. They are the ones who have a right to a fair and speedy trial. But you know who doesn't? Victims. Victims don't have that right. And that's a problem. I think it's a big problem. And I think it's completely overlooked. Completely overlooked by everyone. I think judges, justices, prosecutors, I think they all overlook this. The impact that dragging a case on year after year after year, how that is painful, how that is torture, and how that's a lingering black cloud over a victim and a victim's family. Her husband was shot and killed eight years ago. And for eight years, Nicole Olson goes to sleep every night knowing that the man who shot and killed her husband is a free man. He was charged, but he was out on bond. He was not being held. And I'm not making the argument in this case that, that maybe he should have been held. It wasn't a capital case. He was entitled to some, some level of bond. But with that being said, um, I believe she still has a right for this case to be tried in a reasonable amount of time. Eight years is unreasonable. Eight years is outrageous. And as we all know, prosecutors' cases don't get better with time. They usually get worse because memories fade, uh, witnesses can die, can forget, evidence can be lost, things change, time, healing wounds, etc., all of that. But for the victim and their family, no. Time doesn't heal a wound. Time, the, the passage of time makes it worse. It is salt in the wound. Every morning when you wake up, every night when you go to bed, knowing that your husband's not there, your daughter's father is not there, and the man who did it is with his family. And you haven't had your day in court. And I say this all the time about victims. They never get closure. I don't use that word, closure. The only thing they can get is a sense of justice because their loved one is not coming back. The damage has been done. The question is, will there be more damage? And the extra damage for victims and their families is a sense of the person who is responsible has not been held responsible. And I didn't get my sense of justice. You know, you see families, you know, celebrate in their own way 
when the person responsible is convicted and they're able to be there and they make that statement outside of the courtroom or outside of the courthouse, like our day of justice has arrived. And I thank goodness for that moment for them. But I know, but I know that is not closure. I know when they go home, it, there's still going to be that, that, that empty feeling, that void that will never be filled. But it's that secondary void that has been filled. We did get justice. The person who did it has been held responsible. And that person is locked up tonight. And for Nicole Olson, she doesn't have that. She may never have that because juries can come back and say not guilty. Juries can come back and say we can't reach a unanimous verdict. I understand that. But it's impossible for that to happen if the case is never brought to trial. And eight years is too much. You look at some of these other high-profile cases, like Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, the, the, the men implicated in the death of George Floyd, all of this happening within, within a year, within two years. That's the way our system should work. No way should it take eight years. And to me, that needs to be fixed. It really does. And it's, I think it's the next level of victims' rights. Victims should have some level of a right to a speedy trial. And when I say speedy, something quicker than eight years. All right, folks, if you want to see the trial and, and, and see all the results, we've got um, links in the show notes that you can check out. And of course, you can watch Court TV. We are a network, gavel to gavel coverage each and every day of the biggest trials around the country. Uh, to find us, you can go on courttv.com, click the uh, Find Us tab, and and look in your state where it's available. Uh, we're streaming everywhere. Uh, you can check out uh, our app, our website. Also, if you have a digital antenna, plug that baby in, scan it, rescan it to find Court TV, your front row seat to justice day in and day out. That's it for this week. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week. And don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.